ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's time for What Do You Call It Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of What Do You Call It podcast i'm your host gb and before i introduce my next guest for the first time ever on this podcast i'll be having a co-host for this interview he loves the game he's interviewed some of the biggest names in football and produces quality football videos he's not just my co-host but he's actually one of my best friends my co-host today is shane ryan how you doing today mate you good i'm good thanks yeah how you doing i'm blessed mate i'm blessed thank you for coming on today uh, now on to today's guest. No worries. Played... I can be an assistant. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Just doing the intro that, uh, for my guest today. Uh, so on to today's guest. He's played in all four divisions, including Chelsea, Millwall, Gillingham and Leighton Orient. He's been a manager. He's an author. And his halftime rant has become a cult classic. Please bring your dinner as this interview should be a good <laughs> one. As I'm speaking to John Sitton. How you doing Hello, today, mate? You all good? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. Yeah. Awesome, mate. I want to thank you for coming on today. I know you are a busy man and you have your own podcast as well, which I'm more than happy to plug at the end. Um, as I said privately, I've been looking forward to this interview and having a chat with you because it's actually my first football-related podcast. So let's kickstart this because I know you are still passionate about football to this day. I want to ask you, when did you first discover your love for football? It's just, I think it was, uh, you, you become a product to your environment. I mean, there weren't a lot to do when I was a kid, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, it's, it's what um, my mum and my aunt used to call us, uh, like street rakers, because you you was always outside. You was always out playing. Um, it was the sixties, early seventies, and someone always had a ball. So basically, uh, like I say, you become a product of your environment, and then and then what happens after having kick about? You become sort of semi-organised with regards to Sunday sides, and then. Uh, I like to think it was a bit more organic then, actually. Um, mm -hmm. No one had hold over you uh, in, in terms of uh, minutes played. And I mean, my schedule, it, it, it'd be ridiculous now. You know, if you've affiliated to a club, they wouldn't allow it. And um, you've got this FA thing where they X amount of minutes, you play X amount of minutes and then you rest, whatever it is. Um, you know, you go on to your Sunday side, then you go to school, you get your representative sides, and then all of a sudden people start sitting up and take, it's taking notice of you. Oh, nice, man. And just before you did begin your career at Chelsea, um, you played at Arsenal as a youth. Um, I want to ask, what was it like what, basically playing at Arsenal then, obviously Highbury, and compared to seeing Arsenal now, where it's just sort of diminishing at the moment? I just want to sort of get both takes. Yeah, uh, well, in actual fact, it was... Um... What started it was like, uh, as I described in my, my first book, there's like sort of grainy black and white pictures on the TV on the family holiday, which was uh, my mum and my aunt um, had a caravan in um, Clacton and that used to be our annual holiday. There was none of the, you know, jet setting and all that carry on. It was just, you know, so, so it was like part of the baby boom generation. And I remember looking over and um, seeing a grainy black and white thing on the, in the family room of a pub opposite walking on Nays Pier. And I said, oh, Dad, can we go to football? And he said, yeah, I'll take you to football. He said, on one condition, we only we only go to the Arsenal. So we stood on the North Bank every home game. Then um, actually lied about my age when someone inquired about me. And he said, 
uh, when I trained with the schoolboys, which was under 14, and I was actually, I'd only just turned 12. So right. I quitted myself quite well. But then what happens is, in any adolescent, male or female, you, um, and, and if, you, if you're uh, like a, an aspiring athlete or a pr prospective uh, athlete, you, you know, the, everything's amplified. So you have these growth spurts, uh, which I came to know as Osgood Schlatter when I was delivering modules for the FA as an FA uh, coach educator. Um, and I had like this debilitating pain and injury for, for about eight months. Um, I was there for 10 months actually at Arsenal when we used to train on, there was a big uh, like indoor facility behind the clock end. Um, yeah. We used to, used to train, uh, I think Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, it, we, we had full use of all the, all the facilities, the home team dressing room and that. It was unbelievable, the surroundings, just like total class, you know. Under 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 sort of underfoot eating now everything was marble and granite and mahogany and just built to last. Um, and then I like I say I got the injury and then when I when I came back I started getting representative on as an Arsenal were one of ten clubs that wanted to sign me. I actually I actually forgot the the most obvious one which I ended up playing at which was Leighton Orient. I named nine and then um, I remember a guy called Morris Newman offered me um, an inducement. One of a few clubs that offered me inducements and then. But I mean, at the time, I was very, very naive and very, uh, like what you might call sort of innocent in the respect that I went to Chelsea, fell in love with it, where yeah. no one received any money. You were lucky to get travelling expenses and um, uh, fell in love with it and stayed there from 74 till 80 and went through the, the ranks, you know, schoolboy. And even as a schoolboy, I started getting games in southeast counties. Then you become an apprentice at 16. Then um, I more or less leapfrogged uh, South East County Division 2, straight into Division 1. And then uh, 17 and a half, offered a four-year pro deal. Uh, captain reserves at 18, first team between 18 and 19, and out the club by the time I was 20. Uh, sort of uh, went big time Charlie, I suppose. Mate, it fell into the trap that a lot of youngsters fall into. So, yeah, that was me done. Oh, nice, mate, nice. And with Chelsea, I mean, what what are some of your favourite memories uh, when you were playing for the football club? Well, just like the, the first five years were, were unbelievable because, uh, I mean, all the memories really revolve around uh, just the atmosphere um, within my age group um, and basically the staff, which so when I first went there, Dave Sexton was still the manager. I mean, we had, a, they had an Easter uh, coaching clinic um, where he would stay on after all the pros left. Uh, from their days training and take all the sort of everyone that had been signed schoolboy, they'd be split up into groups. Dario Grady, uh, Ken Shilletto, uh Eddie McCready. So I, I watched him do a session with the reserves. I was just sitting on the on the steps of the pavilion watching it. And then uh, Eddie Mack went on to be the manager and literally got blood out of a stone. Um, there's some, there was some decent talent there, but by and large, um, you know, once they got promoted... Um, it sort of it went downhill after that there was a fallout between <clears throat> there's different myth and legend with revolving around the that revolves around the uh, the fallout between Eddie McCready and the, the club and directors but anyway he left and then it just the club crashed and burned sort of thing after he left you know people bit of a playboy attitude um, you know there were a few good professionals but by and large it was like Ken Bates summed it up really a little bit after I, after I left, he said, like you had this, the great Chelsea side of the 60s and 70s, 
who thought that the uh, the club's training regime and fixtures revolved around their social life. <laughs> and and he said, and then the next generation tried to copy him and weren't as good. So, I, I, yeah. Didn't, have, uh, didn't way before my time, but obviously players like Adam Hudson probably get away with, you know, getting out of the town and then playing the day after, so. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he, he was he was one of uh, the I I one in my generation, Clive Walker. He was sort of a bit of a, it was a physical phenomenon really because he uh, had his he was renowned for his athleticism and apart from his playing ability, uh, unbelievable engine. You know what I mean? So he, he could mm. drink enough to sink a battleship and <laughs> and then uh, run everyone into the ground the next day. You know? Yeah. So that, that's how it was. Peter Ross, good. Um, you know, you, you couldn't put a price on him today. You just wouldn't no. be able to put a price on him today. And especially Aussie. I mean, I only experienced him when he came back uh, the second time. So he went from Chelsea to Southampton. Southampton, I think he went to Philadelphia in uh, the US, then came back to the bridge. And um, he was still phenomenal even then. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit older and maybe a tad slower. But he got used to that anyway, having broken his leg as a 17-year-old. But he had everything. John, who was your, your favourite player growing up? Obviously, from now the age, watching not just... You know, mm. from the stands, but you obviously you, you watched like you know, football on TV match today. You might have grew up, probably did sort of see maybe the best of best as well, which is something that yeah. is a privilege. Yeah. Who was the, the single most, you know, who was your, your foremost player growing up? Who did you look up to? Was it someone maybe uh, off kilter that, that you related to because of your playing style? Was it the obvious one? Who, who did you look up to? Well, I used to look, obviously, I used to look at centre backs, some centre backs I used to look at, and I used to think, well, you know. If he can make it, I must have a chance. Uh, so a little bit sort of disparaging in that respect. But others I used to look at and admire. Um, you can't help but, and a lot of me mates are West Ham supporters, you can't help but love the story associated with 66. Although I had a bit of a fallout later on with one of them. And people think like, you know, obviously I'm the lunatic and I'm the crackerjack. Um, and how can you question this and that and you question that? But I can assure you it's the truth. Um and that was uh, Sir Jeff Hurst's training regime at Chelsea, who became the seventh manager at I'd in six seasons. But people like Bobby Moore and answer your question, Colin Todd, the Roy McFarland, I would look at uh, because they were, you know, decent centre-backs and um, very clever, read the game and uh, very fair. Mm. Uh, they didn't go like smashing through the back of people. Um, probably, probably best is the best player I saw. Mm. Um, I remember going to um, I think it might be it was either New Year's or it might have been a Boxing Day fixture at Ivory, and I, if I distinctly remember the score Arsenal 2 Man United 2 so they two, we, we actually turned up early enough to see them get off the coach because that's how big they were they were like, they were like film stars even back then like yeah. um, you know Cholton Law Best uh, the Holy Trinity as they called them up there the Manx but um, closer to home my, my uh, favourite players at Arsenal were um I used to enjoy watching uh, George Armstrong, Charlie George, John Radford, um, and Peter Story, who, who basically got me out of jail a bit further down the line because I made reference to him when I was um, castigated for some tackles I put in on a couple of Arsenal players for different reasons. I ironed a couple out. and um, So I made reference to it when there was complaints from Arsenal uh, about the duplicity and hypocrisy and double standards in football. I said, I remember watching Peter Story from the North Bank. I said some of these tackles, if they was done on the street, they'd be classed as GBH. So, so don't don't begin to question me. They would have embarrassed Bruce Lee at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
all part of the all part of the duplicity, hypocrisy, and double standards in football. You know, it's all right when they do it, but when um, you you retaliate and iron someone out, it's, oh, you can't do that. You know what I mean? It's like it's like the uh, I've come across thousands of them. You know, begging back in the, my younger days, begging for a slap, but you just give them the benefit of the doubt. Oh man, you just couldn't get away with that in this day and age. I mean, like you know, just especially with VAR. Just, just on that very quickly, John. Um, so obviously, if you go back, if you wind back to football fifteen years ago. Obviously, they always say Van Basten's injuries were a reason why the game become refereed better. Obviously, you know, you want the attacking players protected more. And I've noticed over the last four or five years, in particular, um, it's almost gone too far the other way, and the game's not flowing now, and it's almost a little bit too. Everything's penalised, and they're trying to revert back to that. Do you think football's in serious danger of losing a lot of its appeal if it doesn't actually try and um, maybe tolerate a bit more physicality than it currently does? Yeah, you're spot on what you said. I totally agree. I was, I was going to actually chime in with what you just said about things mm. swinging too far the other way, um, as opposed to your man just saying um, about, it, you know, it wouldn't happen now. Um, but it's like anything in football. It's like anything in life. You know what I mean? There's, there's got to be an happy medium and, the, the pendulum swings, and then sometimes the pendulum the pendulum swings swings too far the other way in favour of, um, mm. you know, whatever category uh, you know it falls into. Inevitably, uh, whatever it is you're talking about, that the pendulum swings too far. Um, yeah, I, I think you can find an happy medium. There's no reason why you can't. Yeah. And it, normally, people that have played the game, they know the difference between someone, between, um, and I've, you know, I've done it myself, and um, I'm not ashamed of it because they asked for it at the time. Um, I've never I've never set out in any football match to purposely injure someone, but then if someone, they start with their elbows or they start, you know, flicking their head back or they start, um, you, you, you've got a movement, whereas normally, like, they drop off and, and, and try and peel away out of your eye line if they're doing it. 100% technically correct to threaten the back. So then that pushes you back so you can keep them in your eye line and then they come off sharp to receive the ball. But then they've come up against centre forwards. They don't bother with that. They just walk backwards quickly and stamp on your toes. Well, I say, OK, you want to play them games? I'll, you play them games with me. I'll play them games with you. And then inevitably, the first chance I get, I'll fucking snap them in half. You know what I mean? Because um, I'm not having it. Uh, but if you want to set out and you want to play uh, a technical cerebral game, I'll, I'll do that as well. Um, but what you've got to do, you've got to find an happy medium. It's right that uh, there's, there's more protection for four players because some of the tackles, like I said, in the, in the 60s, 70s and uh, the early part of the 80s were just criminal. And it's just, it was an out-and-out out, out cheating. I was always taught to defend appropriately. And like I say, I would never get overly physical with someone unless they got overly physical with me. And there was no one in the game, absolutely no one you can name that I was afraid of. In life, I, you know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm bravado. I mean, I'm fucking 62 next month. Do you know what I mean? But there was no mm. one in the game that I was afraid of. Um, but, you know, when you come up against the soonnesses and all that, they're just cowards' tackles. It, yeah. it, 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 was, it, it was like what it is the game induced a state of paranoia. So if you're mm. going into a 50 50, you're thinking, is the geezer going to do me? Is he going to go over the top? Am I going to get my leg broke? So what happens is it changed the mindset. And then it's uh, a case of like they, like Ozzy used to say, get your retaliation in first. After Emily News yeah. broke his leg, as a, as a as a young mm -hmm. as a young footballer, so you had people going in and they're called odd men. They're not odd men. They weren't odd. No. Men. You know what I mean? Pe people um, people like that. The real odd men are the ones that I came across who 
uh, like Ronnie Harris, who would train with an arthritic toe. And um, what I learned from Ronnie and from David A is never let them know when it's coming. You know, so what you do, you go, I was taught, I was taught to defend appropriately if, if someone had their back to me and received the ball um, to, to close down, get low, touch tight, see the ball and only follow the movement of the ball. Don't, don't let them roll you. Don't follow the movement of the body. Um, just follow the movement of the ball. Whereas other people have just come crashing through the back of people. Um, mm. You know, that's a form of cheating, really. So that had to be stamped out. That had to be eradicated. Hello, everyone. I've got a special message for my next guest. I'm the man who sold the world, Idle Hines, and I'm going to be on the What You Call It podcast. Yeah, heard. Okay, awesome. So I just want to ask, what have been some of the toughest grounds that you've played at in your career? Yeah, all of them. Anywhere away. One of them, one of them actually was Stanford Bridge because uh, you had like basically fug, illiterate fucks who made no allowances for an 18-year-old kid. Do you know what I mean? We were they're, they're abusing me. I had like, uh, when they was talking the other day about an Arsenal plan, they said, oh, he's only young at the moment. And uh, you're going to, with, with youngsters, you're going to get inconsistency. So I said to the guy on Twitter, I said, I could have done with you watching my back at Chelsea when I was a kid. I had like 14 first-team games. 11 of them, I was fucking superb. And I had three not very good ones against Wolves at home, QPR at home, and Plymouth at home. And I got absolutely fucking slaughtered. I lambasted, fucking skewered, you know what I mean? No allowances made whatsoever. So you're, you're talking about, um, you know, let's go for a punch-up illiterate thugs who don't really know the game. They don't really take into account that you're a fledgling. And they definitely didn't take into account that we were in the bottom two because of the previous incumbents who cheated their way for the last four seasons. Uh, apart from the, the promotion winning season under Eddie McCready, it was full of fucking playboys who who were either on the treatment table all the time, thought they were doing the club a favour, play, playing, getting paid to play for them, uh, didn't train properly, fucked about, got on the piss, and were never happier than the, And you're talking, <laughs> I'm talking, uh, you're not even allowed to smoke indoors now. You're talking about people with a, a mug of tea, a towel around them, and a fucking Rothmans in, in the treatment room. You know what I mean? It was a despicable, fucking rotten to the core culture. And uh, they took it out on me because the club was in uh, in up shit creek without a paddle. You know what I mean? I yeah. say fuck them now. Do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll stand my ground and go, uh, go shoulder to toe, toe with anybody at, at the end of the day. When you look at what uh, people got away with in terms of their uh, lack of athleticism, even ability, you think to yourself, when you look back, you think, how the fuck did he get a first team game? You know what I mean? And I'm talking about people who played. Uh, 50 to 150 games and you, you know what I mean it's, it's unbelievable you've got to question why it, why it is someone is thrown in maybe before they were ready before their time um, or not as the case may be I like to think I earned it because see mm. even uh, Ray Wilkins said you look you look uh, superb in training sits and you and then I uh, got in the, in the thing and shocked a few people with regards to my performances in first thing game and they're like well done son keep it going um not where the crowd was. I mean, so, so in answer to your question, um, every away game was a, was a difficult ground to go to. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it was even difficult to play at Stamford Bridge. <laughs> apart, from the, apart from the fact that the, the, the pitch was, uh, was a, a disgrace, if you look at anything. What, what, what makes me, gives me, a, uh, you know, even though I slipped down the divisions to Millwall, um, what gives me a sort of a, 
and it, it antagonizes people when it comes across as abrasive. But I'm just, I'm at a stage now where I think to myself, this is what I should have done, which is box my corner in the first place. When you look at the, um, uh, some of the goings on after I left, uh, what springs to mind is uh, particularly a 2 0 1 defeat, the Leighton Orient, the people that cheated and the people that took me place and the people that were stabbing people in the back and um, at every opportunity uh, chiming in for, you know, acerbic wit with, uh, to gain one upmanship um, on a quagmire of a pitch. So the surface was a disgrace. Um, and there, you look at the performance there along with a lot of others, you think, you know, it gives me a sort of a smug, uh, self-satisfied smile of satisfaction. Mm. Yeah. So, so the, you, in answer to your question, even some home games were difficult. No, awesome, man. Mm. I didn't realise it was so... Um, <laughs> very toxic. Very, yeah, very I was going to say, it doesn't, sound, it doesn't sound so fun. <laughs> no, I mean, I, mean no, I, I didn't realise. when I, I mean, I'm getting offered like five grand, five grand in a brown envelope by Malcolm Allison to sign for Crystal Palace. And he said, I want you there. He said, we're getting all the best kids in the country uh, from far and wide. A lot of them London kids, su superb players. Jerry Murphy, who left Chelsea. He was at Chelsea with me. He left Chelsea to go to Palace. Um, Kenny Sansom, uh, Vince Lair, Billy Gilbert. Um, and then from Wales, people the likes of like Peter Nicholas. Um, you, had the, you had the centre forward. I forgot his name, but it come to me in a minute. Um, you had the boy at the, at the back, uh, Boyle. Um, he wanted me to join them. Mm. Uh, so I could have been part of that. I turned it down out of loyalty and love for, for the environment at Chelsea. But it just, in the end, um, it's like a line quoted on the TV series once. In the end, everything turns to shit. You don't realise at the time when it's said how profound it is, but and it's, and it's very true at the end of the day. <laughs> and yeah. and it, it was very, very toxic. Very toxic in the end. I didn't realise the point I was going to make in 76, the year I signed Apprentice, people on the staff, playing staff and backroom staff, were taking pay cuts because Chelsea were in dire financial crisis. And um, whoever negotiated the new East stand was obviously a fucking idiot uh, because they never inserted any penalty clauses. So it just went on and on and on and on and on. And I suppose you had people where they're turning up, signing in for work and then going up the pub because it ran like literally, and at the time it was a lot of money. It, it, it ran hundreds of thousands, if not millions over budget. Yeah. So, that, that you know, trying to redevelop the ground and become um, post-modernistic with, with regards to the stadium, um, it ended up, the, the, it caused major problems for the club. That's why Alan Hudson left, he tells me, because he was promised a signing on fee and they reneged on it. You know I mean? You had all the trophy. You, you, they could have kept that side together. Peter Osgood, another one. They could have kept that side together. And then you had the likes of John Dempsey, who, who um, he, he was injured for the four years I, I was a, an apprentice and a schoolboy. He was injured. Hmm. You know, so you you know, so they, you got two extremes. One you should look to keep. Others you should be... Um, cruel to be kind and, and it's like you've got to be ruthless in your management they pay them up and get rid of them if they're not going to train and play get rid of them even if you did score the winner in the European Cup when it's Cup uh, replay against Real Madrid you know what I mean I, I can name I can name loads and loads of players and I might even do it in my second book but then people are going to go well you're just being churlish and a little bit uh, vindictive but I just um, for me it's important that people know the facts uh, surrounding everything um, yeah you're just being honest that's it yeah, and it, and it is an honest, let people be on there. People have been brutally honest with me all the way through my life. Brutally honest or brutally um, disparaging. And then you think to yourself, well, hold on a minute, have a little count up. You know, the fucking idiots 
five troll idiots, five five follower troll idiots about the cab trade, uh, 20, 20 follower troll idiots about Lake Norian. Um, signings I made as a manager, one signing I made as a manager there. <laughs> I woke up this morning, I went through a catalogue of the previous incumbents, the money they wasted on, on signings, literally wasted, spunked it on wages, signing on fees and transfer fees. Well, just uh, on that, uh, late Orient documentary obviously has to be mentioned. Um, yeah, me and me and George have both seen it, and and, and we absolutely love it. Mm. Um, Why do you love it? Well, honestly, well, because, well, I mean, uh, I mean, well, I personally love it. Just so it's cut you off, I was just going to say before you answer your question, um, is I personally admire you the way you came across it, like your honesty, how brutal you were. I mean, if you did, that's quite common that sort of talk and that discipline on like, it was, football. Yeah. I don't you think know. it would be now, yeah, but it was, it was, yeah. I should have learned from pre from my predecessor who he actually hit a player, Kevin Austin, who one of the loveliest human beings you'd ever meet in your life. A credit mm. to his family, a credit to his upbringing. Uh, may he rest in peace. One of the nicest men alongside Carl Odell who I ever met in football. Um, a gentle giant. He was built like a light heavyweight boxer, this kid. Black kid from Braintree, they got him. And mm. um, unbelievable, phenomenal physique. And a good player, and slowly, but, but he was learning the pro game. Mm. And Eustace, Eustace went up and fucking smacked him around the face at Cambridge when I was getting beat 2-0. Um, I should have learned from that. I, I was never going to raise my hand to anybody, you know what I mean? But the, at the end of the day, bollockings and all that. I mean, I see Frank Clark chin an opposition player up the tunnel. The boy, uh, Millen, who took over at Crystal Palace, thought he was a fucking hard case at, at, Brent, at Brentford. He went over the top on Stevie Castle. Another fucking muppet who... Lucky to get a living out of the game. He goes on <laughs> from strength to strength, you know what I mean? But he went over the top on Stevie Castle at uh, Brisbane Road. And um, Clark, he ran down in the director's box. I was coming back from a ruptured Achilles. I knew what he was going to do. So I ran after him with Frank Wolf, the commercial manager. And just before we could get our hands on him, he just went, as he walked up the tunnel, he went, you fucking dirty bastard. He went crack and chinned him. Yeah. So all that shit goes on. Yeah. Um, uh, would we love the documentary? Because obviously... Yeah. If a document, when a documentary is made now, when it comes to football, it's you know sanitised. Well, it's sanitised, yeah. There's always you know, you know, the things aren't going to get seen, and it's warts and all. And I think that's why I like the QPR one because it was it was a towards that. But do you do you regret doing the documentary at all, or do you have any regrets? No regrets. Are you glad you did it? Do you think it defined you for the better or for the worse? How do you think it? You know, basically, you're glad you did it, really. No, good question. No. No, it's the biggest mistake, biggest mistake I could have made um, for a number of reasons. I can give you an exclusive on here, but I, but I, but I won't because uh, I'm going to save it for me. I'm going to save it for me. But uh, suffice to say, the young lady involved, um, she she spoke to approach football in the community, and she said that she was commissioned by Channel Four, and then um, the football in the community introduced me to her, and then um, we spoke. And it transpired that um, further down the line, we never done uh, enough inquiries, made, never made enough inquiries. Uh, it transpired that she just chanced her way in by saying, um, let's say being economical with the truth or telling a little white lie. And um, <clears throat> she was an IT lecturer who was trying to work her way up in the media and approach someone through contact, whatever. And I remember, I distinctly remember the guy's name. You know, it fucking says it all, really. Uh, Sebastian Cody. He uh, 
he said, we'll give it a go. See if you can get your foot in the door and give it a go. He worked for an independent production company in White Lion Street in Islington. Um, my, my take on it, right, before I forensically answer your question, my take on it, just to explain things and, and lay it out for you, yeah. I went to the chairman and I said, look, we're, the poor, we're, we're London's poor relations. Everyone's patron, and this is where I wanted to try and change the culture of the club. And it's been in situ at least all the time I was there and at least the last 25 years. So 35 years now, where people are oh, the O's. What's going on over the O's? You know what I mean? <clears throat> and like um, a condescending, patronising approach to Lake Norrent, whereby to the east, you've got West Ham five minutes away. To the north, as the crow flies, first of all, you come across Spurs, then 10 minutes up the Seven Sisters Road, Arsenal. Um, you go through a Blackwood Tunnel, you've got Millwall, and then a bit further on Cholton. So I said to the chairman, we're surrounded by uh, a much bigger fish. We're patronised, we're condescended to. Maybe it could be a good thing to raise the profile of the club, let people see what the hard work that's going on behind the scenes. Um, and I didn't realise at the time that um, it was a perfect stomp because the club were losing for a number of seasons, 10 grand a week. The chairman at the time, Tony Wood, um, via his business in Rwanda, which was a coffee plantation where he'd been based for nearly 40 years, he was underpinning from their profits, he was underpinning the losses at Leighton Orient, which he gave to Frank Clark and Peter Eustace. And then when I took over, he just said, I can't do it anymore. There's no money left, but the business is decimated. There's people uh, floating face down in my swimming pool with heads and arms missing where they've been macheted to fuck because of the Rwandan civil war. And depending on what article you read, between eight and 900,000 people were um, slaughtered. Yeah. Right, so, yeah. It, so it, it was a perfect storm. So it backfired on me in that respect. Um, in the meantime, I was juggling six jobs behind the scenes, trying to, when, when this sense of realisation smacked me in the face. Um, and then forensically, in answer to your question, A, I wouldn't have done it, um, from a personal point of view, and then B, even though it works out that I had a tantrum, uh, flipped my lid, lost it, <clears throat> um, bollocked the players, whatever phrase you want to use, it worked out for the 10 months that I was there, it worked out that I've, I've flipped my lid about once every 10 to 12 weeks. The rest was like top draw uh, sessions, top draw coaching, top draw information, and bundles and bundles of encouragement. Um, I didn't realise that um, naively journalism is based on sensationalism. So all of that good work with me juggling um, first team manager's job, first team coach's job, reserve team coach's job, youth team coach's job, chief scout, fuck knows why, because we never had any money in the PFA, we're paying the wages for eight months. Uh, so why was I going around looking at players planning for the future? In the end, commercial manager's job, because the... Um, there was no money for a coach or an overnight stay. So I had to ring mates who were in business. Mm -hmm. um, all of that was on the um, cutting room floor of the editorial suite. So, um, and then with regards to um, an ex-teammate getting rid of him at half time, it done more damage to me um, than I thought it would. Because I thought I was just trying, I was just trying to protect the club and the supporters from um, people who weren't very good players to begin with people who were poor athletes, poor professionals, um, had the wrong attitude. Um, when you talk about Chelsea earlier on, fuck me. I mean, his routine was Walthamstow dogs on a, or Romford dogs on a Tuesday night. Yeah. 
I think it was Tuesday night, Walthamstow Dogs. Um, if we had a fixture, fair enough. He'd fulfil the fixture, then go to Wally Woods or Charlie Chance. Wednesday night, Romford Dogs. Thursday night, Walthamstow Dogs. Then on to uh, Charlie Chance or Wally Woods in Romford again. Um, Friday night, he might have a breather and just go to Acne in the afternoon and then have a bu bucket of KFC on the way home. Then Saturday, played a game. And then Saturday night, again, Walthamstow Dogs. And then on to Charlie Chance, Charlie Chance or... Hollywood's in Romford. I mean, that's not the fucking life of an athlete. That's not, you know, mm. you should be, yeah, it's like I said to younger players very quickly. Um, and he latched onto it, Redknapp, <coughs> Harry Redknapp. You, you've got the rest of you. When I said it, I said it years and years and years ago. And then the latter day, he latched onto it and he's, he's used it, paraphrased it. But I just used to say to young players, you know, it's a very, very, learn from my mistakes. It's a very, very short career. Life is short. Your career is even shorter. And I, I'm, I've, Fast forward from 12, I'm now 62 next month. So 50 years, it's gone like that, right? Yeah. So I'll say to them, uh, life's short. Your career is even shorter. You've got the rest of your life to eat and drink yourself to death. I'll, mm. I'll call it the afterlife because it's like, once you come out of football, it's a countdown to death. It can, the, the, buzz, the buzz can, for my money, for my, my opinion, the buzz of training every day and playing and the build-up and the crowd and the warm-up, it can never be replaced, ever, never. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. <clears throat> the only thing that's come close is um, me fighting off all the bubbles to for, for me to, to win my wife and, the, and the, my marriage and proving them all wrong because here we are 45 years later and all our peers are divorced because all this fucking racist shit that's gone on, that's a two-way street. All the talk about racism, that's a two-way street. You won't believe the fucking shit I'll put up with and that to listen to and the disparaging remarks and the fucking snide comments. I had it from the Greeks, she had it from the English. The only thing that can come close is um, winning her <clears throat> and the birth of my three children. That's the only thing that comes close. It just brings me on quickly, John, just when you said about lack of professionalism at, at Leighton Orient. Just looking at sort of modern day now, what do you think the biggest divider is between kind of Premier League? Obviously, we know the Premier League on a technical level is, is, is kind of light years ahead. But if you're talking about kind of like League One, League Two players, you know, what's the difference between them kind of going from there to being like a top-end championship player, is it they just haven't got the dedication? Is it pure technique? Is it athleticism? Could or be. is it just, what do you think it is? Or what could, be, think could, kind of difference? could be all of the above. Could be one of those ingredients you've named. Could be, <clears throat> like me, <clears throat> supposedly it was lack of athleticism. Yeah. You, can, you can count on one hand in all four divisions the number of times I've got to chase it. So the, you, people sometimes coaches and managers look at what you can't do rather than what you can do. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. What you got to say? Oh, hold on a minute. He's played a full season. How many times has he had a roasting? How many times has he had a chasing? So I was a victim of that because you're dealing with fucking intellectual pygmies, right? Like fucking muppets like Clark and mm. uh, Peacock at Gillingham. I mean, I, the way I phrase it in my book at Gillingham, um, and then before that, Anderson who went down at Millwall in, in Millwall's history as the, uh, the worst manager in Millwall's history. Well, we can't all be fucking wrong. You get me? But in answer to your question, it could be one or all of the above. It could be yeah. technique. It could be uh, perceived lack of athleticism. It could be a yard of pace. It could be they've got that, but they ain't got the dedication. You know, I, yeah. I realised um, in the end that I had to be at my optimum level every day and train hard every day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which probably looking at some photos, like I've, I was showing one on Twitter today, I actually look ill. I lost. I was so. I was so drawn and so thin, so cut. I actually looked ill. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, inevitably, other than that, it's uh, <clears throat> see. 
there's not a lot of difference, I would say, technique-wise. What I would say is they're mm. sometimes bigger, faster, think quicker. So sometimes it's a mental thing. You know what I mean? People see, yeah. see things see things quicker. quicker. And then what happens is you bounce off of that. Yeah. Um, that's where, like, um, going back to my Chelsea days, you had David O who came from Celtic, played for Scotland, out Brazil, the Brazilians in the 74 World Cup. He played mid, right midfield. I think he played number... Mm. I think he played number four. I'm not sure. Anyway, he out Brazil the Brazilians in the 74 World Cup. You've got Ronnie Harris, acne boy, uh, sharp as a, a carpet sack. You know, so like... Um, uh, but then he, were, he would resort to violence if someone up against him um, had the measure of him. Um, Alan Hudson, people like that. And, and latter day in my era, Ray Wilkins. He, he was uh, two levels above everyone at the club. Mm. When he walked in the room, dressing room, any room, it was like Frank Sinatra walked in. He was two levels above every, uh, anyone else. So in answer to your question, it could be a number of ingredients or it could just be one ingredient that's missing. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's an individual case. But I think for me, for me, just I think athleticism, agility is, is the difference between Premier League and even Championship and the rest is huge. I it's just hard to sort of fathom whether that's, whether that's down to um, kind of a lack of preparation or just natural kind of athleticism. But you're absolutely spot on about thinking in the brain. I think that's an underrated... I think that's something that you just get an early age. You might be technically average, but if you can think quicker, then then obviously. Yeah, I mean, I, listen. Pe people sometimes people just use it to get them out of jail. I mean, yeah. I, I look at Rio Ferdinand's last seven seasons. He had one very very good season, uh, maybe one and a half out of the last seven, and yet he's revered of what, as one of the finest central defenders in the country um, of his era of all time. But I can assure you, as an ex centre back, looking at his game and studying his game. Far too often, particularly earlier in his career, he, he used his pace to get him out of jail because it was like, yeah, uh, you know, you might have had a souped up uh, Escort RS2000 racing a Ferrari. He was the Ferrari and then he clicked into the fifth gear and and, lit, and overdrive and then polish every, tidy everything up. Are you in the school, John, John, you found me in the belief that because it's a big debate, Rio or John Terry, for me it's always been they're both brilliant, but John Terry, I mean, he's very much in, in the camp of John Terry, just cut above. Rio and his, his, his people of his generation? I think uh, someone who used to clean my boots at Millwall summed it up perfectly, Teddy Sheringham. When you're not used to pace, you have to think about the game more. Yeah. yeah. You understand? And yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll come into that category as well in the end. But then uh, I'm marking like Steve Ball's playing for Wolves. I'm marking him out of the game. I've got him in, I might still have him in my pocket somewhere. I don't know. And, <laughs> and then three, three months later, he's going to the World yeah. Cup in Italia 90. Six months later, he's going to, going to the World Cup in Italia 90. It's a bit like that. that's, that's how thin yeah. the dividing line is. That's how thin the dividing line is. It's, it's Adama, Adama Torre at Wolves is, 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 from an early age has obviously been rapid. And yeah. he only knows one range. He's never had to actually think. So when he gets into those moments in the final third where he's got to show a little bit of, you know, split-second decision-making because he's never done it from an early age. He, can't, mm. he, he comes wanting, but because he was so fast and powerful from an early age, he never needed mm. to sit. That's like the extreme example, but it follows through. Throughout, yeah. even you know, good players like, yeah, absolutely. You don't have to think about the game because you never had. To I'm being ultra coming. critical. I'm being ultra critical, mega critical. Because uh, he's an international, but you look at him head down and run, like blistering yeah. pace, so explosive, it's unbelievable. He oh, leaves, yeah. he leaves two or three players in his way, right? That like, like literally, they're, they're history. Yeah. They're yeah. in, they're in his slipstream. But then you're looking at his decision making. You're thinking, well, hold on, you've got like a two-player overload here free mm. player overload here. Then you look at like uh, his guile or his finish and he's found wanting. It's yeah, a minging cross. Fine. It's a minging final Same. ball. 
or it's a, it's a minging effort on goal when, when really and truly uh, it should be far more productive. It is a shame, but I think he's at an age now where it's going to be hard to... Yeah, he won't improve. Improve that, I think. You get to a certain point, don't you? I think seeing the picture, as Graham Cena's likes to say, I think it's difficult when... Well, so you, <coughs> another one's Carl Walker. I mean, I, I thought it was good business yeah. by Spurs back in the day. I actually, yeah. uh, what I said was quite disparaging of a mate of mine on radio. He never, he never broadcast it, Adrian Durham. They were talking about the deal <clears throat> on Talk Sport on his drive time show. I think they've moved him now. I mean, I, probably why I can't get a gig on radio and I've never been able to. Uh, but I just said, like, Man City have just given 50 million for Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but he's now, mm. he's now, he's now turned things right round. Mm. And even at what is he, 31, 32, you think, yeah. fuck me, it's, it's took you long enough. It's taken you yeah. 10 years for the penny to drop in terms of um, improving his game. And he was one of England's yeah, good World Cup. players of the, uh, players Euro, of the tournament. Yeah, he was one of England's players of the tournament. And yeah. I'd doff me cap and applaud him. You know what I mean? But there's still yeah. areas where he can improve his, his game. Oh, but it's, but it's, the, 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 then who do you blame him or the coaches? Did, you know what I mean? Because like he could punch it into the front man, follow the pass, clear the space, rotate with the nearest midfield player. He could punch it yeah. in, follow his pass, get a setback and have a, a, a shot at goal. He could, he could punch it in and then rotate. The, the nearest midfield player could play off the front man and he could slide in sideways and become a midfield player. You understand? But mm. he don't. He just plays in that. You draw he a dotted does, line between lines. the corner of each box and you draw a dotted line and he just operates in that area. For me, it's not yeah. good enough. You uh, understand? To be fair, yeah, a couple of split passes that he did in the first game of the season, like it was against Norwich. He wouldn't have been able to do that maybe three or four years ago. But yeah, I think there was still room for improvement. I think... Sorry to say, but I think Reese James basically what you're looking for really is more of a. Well, Carl Walker's done well, hasn't he? He's, he's yeah, 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 yeah. It'll never be, you know. But it's, anyway, it ain't my job. It ain't my job. My, 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 my. Um, I have you had a I didn't go. I didn't go. I, I didn't go. Cap in hand. I didn't go. I didn't latch onto someone in someone's slipstream. Uh, I didn't make myself busy. I didn't go and play golf because I don't like it. I with Mark Twain. I think it's a good walk spoiled. Um, I didn't get on the piss. I, I became a model professional, and all the jobs are given out over a game of golf or half a lager in your social contacts. Um, yeah, someone, someone true. higher profile like Glenn Oddle, like Johnny Gorman did. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So uh, I've been out the game, and it's been a waste of knowledge for 25 years at least. Mm. So, you know what I mean? So th th but there we are. I'm quite philosophical about it. I weren't going to, at, at the end of the day, I was just going to, um, always going to be my own man. I'm, 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 um, I'll listen. I'll take stuff on board, but I'm a leader. I'm not a follower. Mm. I, I won't be. I won't be going. Thing that oh, can I be on your staff? Can I just begging for a job in the game? I made my own job. I made my own employment. Mm. Do you think you'd still be in the game now uh, if it wasn't for that documentary you tainted by? And you, you know, you're absolutely certain that you'd have you'd have kind of, you know, carried on in the game if it wasn't for that. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, but then you talk talk to the girl that made it when I spoke to her at the time, uh, and I said, "What have you done to me?" Uh, because we all signed a disclaimer, and like mm. I said very naively, I thought to myself it would be um, a balanced view of the goings on behind the scenes, uh, the fact that the club was hemorrhaging ten grand a week, the fact that it was about to go in, into administration, ultimately liquidation, the fact that I was doing six jobs, the fact that I still attended the centre of excellence and watched the kids and met the parents. And sometimes did a little session for one age group. And then, like I said, youth team reserves, first team, scout, um, commercial manager, um, mm. 
I thought it would be a balanced view and show all of that. The fact that players never received part segments or chunks of their signing on fee, the fact that they never got paid, the fact that the PFA were paying the wages for eight months. Um, and she said, it's not my fault if people in football can't work out the strain and the stress she was under and that they've, they've got two brain cells. That was her, that's verbatim. Yeah, just a quick not. one. I was just going to say, um, as you've mentioned, as it's one of your biggest regrets, I just want to ask, I mean, me and Shane, we, we did really like it, like the Fly on the Wall documentary, sort of, you know, having that feeling that you're there in the team talks. I just want to ask, um, even though you have the regrets, but has anyone in football sort of reached out to you after it was done and sort of, you know, given you praise for how you were emotionally speaking the truth and sort of how you conducted yourself? Sort of any names that might surprise us? I remember at the time Harry Redknapp and George Graham tried to help me with players. And then um, in terms of loans, Matty Holland, I could have took from West Ham. I said, I've got enough midfield players. I need a forward. Mm -hmm. I went to George and he said, uh, I could let you have Paul Reid, who ended up at Wickham under O'Neill. Uh, actually with Howard. Um, he said, Paul, sure, I want to make a clean break. And then there was talking about the goings on. Ray Wilkins, I was a bit disappointed with, may he rest in peace, because he, he took me under his wing at Chelsea. Him and Ronnie Harris gave me a lot of advice. David A gave me a lot of advice, tried to guide me. But I didn't listen. I mean, I was 18. You know what I mean? I was, um, my personality was already formed, uh, rightly or wrongly. You know what I mean? In, 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 if I look back, I'd say wrongly. Mm. Like I said, you're a pr product of your environment. And if, if you read my book, you'll see the reasons why, maybe. Um, other than that, just non-league, where I was offered jobs and I took one which was a firefighting job. So that was like out of the fat into the fire uh, at Enfield. Hello, everyone. I've got a special message for my next guest. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is the king of British wrestling, RJ Singh, and you can hear me coming up on the What You Call It podcast. Singh is king, and you heard. With regards to help, I then went on, uh, I was offered a, another non-league job. I took, did a little thing at uh, Arangay Barra, which they've had a couple of good years recently. Mm -hmm. uh, with regards to FA Cup runs and doing, I think they had um, two promotions in three years, three promotions in five years, plus the cup runs. So they, they've done all right. Off the back uh -huh. of me, uh, keeping the club afloat. And then uh, Leighton FC, where I had a really good time. And then I was let go and then I got asked back after they got Peter Shreves at it for two years. So that was a nice boost to me ego. But in the pro game, no, not really. No one's ever... Um, I think Patsyola may be out of guilt a little bit because um, when I went in and I thought I'd done a three-year deal with Barry Earn, promised me a three-year deal. And then Barry being Barry said, the job's worth 50 grand a year, but you'll be getting 35. So, you know, like um, uh, stereotypical Americanism. That's how, and that's how, they, that's how they encourage the, and, and induce the race to the bottom and get more profit for the people at the top. They say the job's worth 50 grand, but you'll be getting 35. And if you don't do it for 35, I'll find someone that will. Yeah. And then uh, he says, who do you want to bring in as your number two? And I said, um, well, he worked here as a coach before. I said, I, I, uh, I think would be a good um, combination. Um, I'm happy to play bad cop. If it's good cop, bad cop, I think would be good sounding balls for each other, Pat Holland. I said he was, I actually, uh, he was, he was first team coach. He was youth team coach at Lake Norrin and then youth team coach, first team coach for a year. 
after being youth team coach. And then he went to Spurs when uh, Frank Clark bought him Brian Eastick over him um, and, and ended up with their kids. So I said, so I think we'll work well together. And I, I didn't know I was putting the final nail on my own coffin because um, he was conducting interviews behind me back, I'm led to believe, allegedly. Okay. Um, but, but so anyway, you know, I, I haven't really, apart from Pat offering me a bit of scouting work, he said, I've got a bit of scouting work off the Arsenal sits. He rang me up. He said, let, let bygones be bygones. He said, let's go to games together. Manchester City and Arsenal need match reports and player reports. And then it ended up, he said, look, he said, I spoke to Steve Rowley. He said, I'm going to concentrate on um, forwarding reports to Arsenal. He said, and I spoke to Jimmy Frizzell and you can take over for Manchester City. Mm. So I was working for them for about a year and I, I recommended a centre-back called Arjun Dazu, a midfield player called Tim Cahill and another midfield player called Frank Lampard. Mm. And I said, uh, try and get nice. him away's worth... Try and get him ways. Yeah, I mean, this fucking um, white espresso snorting fucking idiot on radio, Johnny Vaughan, uh, coated me off and then he'd done a thing on the, the following week saying, is that right? He said, he, he said, I can't believe he said he discovered Frank Lampard. I, was, I never fucking said that. You're hearing things because of the shit you're snorting, you know what I mean? Um, uh, in, in bygone days. And I can't believe he actually thought he had a fucking chance with Madonna, fucking idiot. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's, he's one of them. Like, yeah. like, like just, but anyway, no, what I said was I just recommended him as a 17-year-old. Uh, yeah. he, was still, he was still a bit podgy yeah. turning out for West Ham. And the final report I did very quickly was a 3-0 defeat at Ivory. Arsenal 3, West Ham 0. But he was still wanting the ball, still like nicking stuff around the corner, still making runs off of the front man um, and still putting his foot in against Vieira and Petit. And I just said, get him while you can, while he's worth the money. And they never, and he went, he went to Chelsea and the rest is history. John, just quickly, mate, um, I'm intrigued, obviously, saying about, you know, you are, you are because you're a product of your environment. Now, you obviously, you grew up in an era, the apprenticeship era, where player, young players would have a few jobs, the oh. older players, and there was accusations of bullying, whatnot. And then, obviously, yeah. earlier. now it's all changed. It's a very sort of, like, closeted, sanitised academy system. Yes. Where do you stand on it? Has it gone too far the other way? Where should it go? Do you think it was right what went on back in the day? Do you think we, we, were too, we went too far then? No, nah, nah, it weren't right. No, nah, it was wrong. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. 12 quid a week. Just there, like, it was li literally fucking slave labour. You know, the people. The, another thing that's been imported from America is, a, is white, pri like white privilege. Just saying white privilege. The biggest load of fucking historical bollocks you've ever heard in your life. White privilege is what? The creation of the Industrial Revolution by a scientist given money um, by someone higher up and powerful with a lot of money. And then my descendants basically um, record numbers of infant mortality and industrial diseases and working for fucking slave wages. I was on 12 quid a week. We had to get to the ground, lay the kit out, fold it all up in the numbers, load it into the skip. You get driven to the training ground. You lay all the kit out, the boots, then you had to collect it in at the end of the day, lay it all out and put it in the skip. Then you had to take it back to the laundry room and lay it all out. Socks, shirts, uh, shorts, jock straps. And then when I was coming through, you had to get to the ground early. Chelsea Football Club, European champions, right? Couldn't afford fucking enough jock straps so that every member of the playing staff had one. So like, because of the way I'm built, I've got my fucking Hampton and Knackers banging all over the place because I ain't got no, I ended up having to wear my own underpants to, to train. You understand what I mean? That's how bad yeah. it was. And then you had to uh, collect the boots and you had to bang all the mud off, 
We had shit training ground at Mitcham. We had another shit training ground at Molsey. The best facility was one that Ember caught that we borrowed off the Metropolitan Police. It was like a bowling green, right? So, but the previous two, you had to bang the mud off. Then you had to wait for the mud to dry uh, so you could do it with a wire brush. Then you had to polish, uh, um, buff them up with uh, polish and then, and then uh, put a shine on them, right? And then uh, again the next day and then clean all the baths and all the showers and all the dressing rooms and make sure all the baths were spotless clean, make sure all the showers and the shower heads were spotless clean, make sure the dressing room was mopped, swept and, uh, swept and mopped. Then you had the gun, uh, then there was one day a week where you had to sweep the terraces. Imagine doing that sweeping the terraces, Arsenal v Leeds or Arsenal v, uh, uh, sorry, Chelsea v Leeds or Chelsea v Arsenal. You know what I mean? 42,000. Yeah. Fucking They're shit. hiding behind, oh, it's making the, them tougher for the game and it's going to, really, it was just exploitation. Listen, what we should have been doing, we, should, we didn't even get a lunch. We didn't even get a lunch. Mm. What you should have been doing, you should have been training. Yeah. And then, like now, they've got staff as big as a UN delegation. I'm looking at all the all the, yeah. all the Muppets sitting behind Arteta who's fucking clinging on <laughs> for dear life. He's got, like, <laughs> fucking, he's got 15 staff. What the fuck are they doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> all, them, no, all them staff, I mean, give me 100 grand a year. I'll give you some fucking ideas out of living them up. And I'm not talking yeah. about swearing and frank cups. I'm talking about drilling a, like a back four that looked like they fucking got introduced to each other just before kickoff. You understand? Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a fucking fast game, right? But anyway, that's another story. That's a complete another story. It ties you in with what you just asked me. No one's ever said to me, Sis, do you want to come in and do a few sessions or and we'll have a look here and, and, and then uh, maybe we can negotiate something. Even if I went in once a week to, to drill the, drill them defensively. I'm talking mm. about I'm talking about the, like the top echelon of the game, not the fucking ability, talent wasted on the, the club I was at. It was a fucking waste of time, a waste of time and a waste of talent. Trust me, believe me. But um, no, in answer to your question, you sh and then you should have had lunch. Then you should say, "Well, we're going to have a session in the afternoon, like they did in Italy." I mm. was just coming through as a youth coach at the Orient, right? And uh, we got this thing where they sent a delegation to look at the Italian training regime. And they're in there having breakfast at 8.30 in the morning. And, um, and you didn't have to shout and scream at anybody. Everybody yeah. was bought up appropriately. They cleared away their own um, plates and knives and forks and spoons, a bit of toast and porridge, whatever. Then they'd yeah. go out and train. Then they'd have uh, the Gatorade. And then they'd go out and train again. Then they'd have lunch. And then they'd have a rest on the airbeds. And then they'd go out and train again. And then they'd have another final session at the end of the day, which might be something in... Um, a lecture room. I said, can you imagine the, the pros in England doing four sessions a day? You know what I mean? They were having, they were going fucking ballistic when I wanted two. So can you imagine doing them, them doing four and asking a report for, for breakfast and, and uh, a, a drinks break and a, and a lunch? Nah, I've got to get but under the white kids. I'll, yeah, I'll send to the missus, I'll take, I'm taking it to Blue Water. I can't fucking be having this. Yeah. Oh, I want it. I'm going for a game of snooker. I'm going... You know what I mean? And then, mm. then you got, I mean, what one is it? I see Paul Merson on the thing, Harry's hero, breaking down. And then uh, on a previous interview, he said, uh, they'll go home now and play Xbox and whatever he said. Some fucking life that is, isn't it? Some life that is, isn't it? And then, on the, so he's right. He's being cri cri critical with that. The fact that they're doing a session, then going around, because uh, I bollock my son over it. You've got grown men playing fucking Xbox and they're driving in London, like they're in Xbox. Do you understand what I mean? They think it's a fucking video game, the way they drive. Scandalous to fucking driving, but that's that's another issue altogether. I'm just talking about tangible comments. Then the next thing on Harry Zeros is breaking down, right? So if someone have, have embedded in, what one is it? 
is it like some life that is at playing Xbox? I'd rather spend the afternoon in a betting shop or on the piss or both in his case, right? Um, or, you know, do you want to be guided and educated accordingly, knowing that you've got the rest of your life at 33, 34, 35 until mm-hmm. you're dead at 85 to gamble, drink and eat yourself silly? <laughs> you understand what I mean? I mean, look, listen, you say, do I regret it? Picking you up on what you asked me earlier on, right? And this is just a little taster of, of what's in my book. If you look at the list of what's gone on since, and maybe I've got too many weaknesses, maybe I'm too forthright, maybe I'm too abrasive, maybe I'm too outspoken. I don't think I am. I, I, I think I know how to handle myself. I'll tell you why, because I've been in the black cab trade nearly 20 years and I've never had a complaint forwarded to the carriage office because I know how to deal with people. I know if someone's going to be a bit spiky. So yeah. I, I, so it's like from my martial arts days. If you push, I'll rescind. I'll pull. Yeah. If, 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 you, if, you, if you sink back, I'll, I'll use my body weight. If you, if you push against me, I'll use your body weight. You understand? Uh, as a metaphor. So I know how to handle myself with Dutch, Dutch, uh, duchesses all the way down to street girls who <laughs> drunk out their head. No, but let, 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 let me finish this point, right? You've had drug addiction, gambling addiction, alcoholism. In the case of one person, all three, they managed a football club for three years. Mm. But it's rife in the game, right? You've had nefarious goings-on with women in hotels. You've had alleged rape. You've had underage sex that we know about, uh, uh, twice that we know about, right? And they both received prison sentences. The first prison sentence was less than the second prison sentence, even though the first prison sentence uh, involved a girl younger than the second prison sentence, right? Just to give you a little insight, you've had um, um, violence in nightclubs. You've had someone involved in a car theft ring. Uh, you've had someone headbutt a player on the touchline. You've had someone get hold of a op- uh, that's an opposition player. You've had someone get hold of an opposition round the throat on the touchline and pin him down, moron. Um, you've had uh, what else have you had? Bunk scandals. I can give you a list as long as you're on. And then someone like Adrian Durham, who I'm talking to privately, says, oh, they was all at it back in the day. Oh, well, the fucking hell, does that make it all right then? That's just sheer greed. That's mm. just sheer greed. You know what I mean? You've had the heinous crime of uh, people being allowed back in the game because they're players and they've got a perceived talent, right, who have killed someone because they're drunk driving in a Range Rover, a two-ton vehicle ploughed through them at a fucking bus stop. What I did is I, I'll fuck some people right off Cunted them off, right? Sorry, because you said don't say it. Right, okay, but it's on. Right. Right, so it's on the fucking documentary, right? I've slaughtered some people who were using Leighton Orient in the twilight of their career as an ATM, and people are, they must have balls like watermelons to criticise me about a five grand signing when you had someone like Trevor Putney, the deal that he did that Eustace did to get him from Watford as a 34-year-old. So where's the resale value? Right, come to 165 grand. He played 22 games. <laughs> in in just under a free, he negotiated a three-year deal, just under a three-year deal or a three-year deal, 22 games in three years. So I said, forget the two games, forget the odd five grand, 20 games, 160 grand, uh, a club hemorrhaging 10 grand a week. He cost the club eight grand a game. I said, you could have got fucking Maradona on loan for that. I'm saying to the directors, who sanctioned this? So I'm calling out the directors as well, who, by the way, wouldn't put their hand in the pocket Right, because Angel Motors said that uh, we can't have a coach unless it's paid for up front and our uh, our account is settled in full. And from now on, you've got to pay for every trip up front. 
because of the what had gone round within the game, within the game um, of what was going on at Leighton Orient. You understand? They wouldn't even put their hands in their pocket for uh, a couple of pints of milk and a box of tea bags. Mm. They couldn't even settle the milk bill. So the creditors even went down to the milkman. So the point I make is, when I called them out, and then a handful of people behind me. I know I know why uh, certain Leighton Orient supporters have got it in for me, because I said in a documentary, if I'm going to take a, a abuse from a fucking bunch of cockroaches behind me, all, all it was was a handful of people who I stopped. When I parked my car, there was nowhere to park at the ground. You park around the ground. On the way to the ground, I stopped and spoke to every supporter that I came across. I stopped and explained it to every supporter what we were trying to do that I came across, right? But then when they're shaking your hand and smiling to your face and then stabbing you in the back, right? And then you turn around, like when you switch a light on at Leighton Orient in the kitchen, right? You go in in the morning, you switch the light on, there'd be thousands of cockroaches on the floor and they'd all scurry under the units. We had to call in the, um, what do you call the exterminator? Right, that's why I called them that. And that's why they hate me, because there was an handful behind me. And one of them, I even see him to this day. He's a cab driver. He's, he can be, he, all right, sits, how's it going? How's it, yeah, 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 all the best. And then on camera, he's going, sit and out, sit and out. And you just think, you know, at least have the fucking balls. Mm, at least have the fucking balls to be a snake. They're fucking snake. I've called them cockroaches. Well, that's why they fucking hate me. You know what I mean? About I've, I've had six runs on my book. I won't tell you how many I've sold, but uh, out of the good few that I sold, about 50 supporters have bought the book, 50 Orange supporters. All the rest has come from around the world and around the, the UK and from other football clubs who are interested in my story. But yeah. it's ironic that I was at a club for 10 years, six years as a player, two years as an academy coach, a year as youth team coach and just under a year as first team, so 10 years altogether, then they don't want to know my story. They don't want to know what went on behind the scenes. That hurts. That's like a dagger to the heart. I can imagine. Have you actually returned to Leighton Orient since this has all Once. happened? Once. How was it? Um, well, I went back as um, as an employee of, of the Press Association because, as you may or may not know, at the end of the documentary, it says that I was banned from the ground. The reason I was banned from the ground is I rescued... Um, what turned out to be a ne'er-do-well waster, um, like, basically an ex-teammate who turned out to be a ne'er-do-well and a waster, Sean Brooks, uh, got him off the dole queue. Um, he was living at another teammate's house, hmm. Kevin Ells, who put him up, who basically rang me up and said, can you give, give him a chance? He's fucking mad. He's split up from his wife. He was, he was on his knees. And then... Um, I thought we could work in shorthand and he knew me, he knew my personality. So if he, know, he knows what I was like as a player, so he should know what I'm going to be like as a coach. I'm a bad loser. You understand? And I'm not going to suffer fucking idiots yeah. um, who are there just to ponce around and turn up thinking they're doing the club a favour. Um, you know, taking the supporters' money. Um, anyway, it transpired that uh, he said saying, oh, it's so much better now as in the training ground in uh, Debden, right? Well, I've been trying since I was a player, talking to Frank Clark, we need a training ground because you'd go in to the main ground every day, every day, every day. So now the main ground doesn't become a special place. The dressing room doesn't become a special place. It becomes an everyday place and you get fed up with the surroundings and we had to wait for a phone call to give us the go-ahead to uh, which one of four training grounds which basically were public parks that we could turn up to and train, covered in goose shit, dog shit, with no nets, etc., etc. So I kept on and on and on about 
we need a training ground, right? Yeah. So then Brian Eastick came and he got us Douglas out, which in, that, in, in the end, that turned out to be a shithole because it was like full-scale winds blowing in off the reservoirs and there was an infection of Canadian geese. It was just like covered in geese, goose shit, right? Oh. <laughs> so anyway, Earn, on my advice, part of the portfolio that I advised him, which also I think frightened him um, because it meant money and it meant outlay and it meant uh, ambition, uh, negotiated a new a new training ground at Debden. So yeah, it's so much better now. And Sean Brooks, who I got off the dole queue and gave a two-year contract and found somewhere to live, right? Get this. He was homeless. I found him somewhere to live twice, right? He was homeless. I found him somewhere to live. And the I thanks I got, the thanks I got was, oh, it's so much better now, right? So I rang out, I went, who are you? And he went, I don't need this. Fucking, I, I don't fucking need this. Like he's some sort of, uh, like they used to say in the 80s, he was off the front front cover of Vogue, some sort of fucking self-appointed film star, rock star, pretty boy, right? I don't need this. And he put the phone down, mm. right? And then he went behind my back to Bernard Goodall, Earn's executive, who came in and run the rule over everybody and totally undermined what we were doing. Um, it, was an, it was the image of Frank Fraser, the 60s villain. I called him Mad Frankie Fraser. Um because he was a spitting image of him. Anyway, he rang me up and he said, look, you know, I think the best thing we're all concerned, he said, is uh, you're not welcome at the ground anymore. Um, so don't don't bother coming to any games. Da, da, da. He said, I think it's best for all parties concerned. So fair enough. And then um, they tried to put the block on me when I was working for the Press Association, the original point. So I just said to the people at the Press Association, I need this because I was juggling four part-time jobs while I was studying the topographical knowledge of London to be a black cab driver. Mm. So uh, I said, it's restraint to trade. So they had to let me in. And then I went, uh, when I was in the National League under Edinburgh, just in Edinburgh, a couple of years ago, when they, when what I predicted would happen, happened uh, to Barry Earn. Uh, it's a bit of a piss take cliche because Dean Saunders said it, but it, it's, it's used a lot in football. Um, if you stand still, you're going backwards, as mm. in everybody else is streaming past you. But people think, and you look at the, if you examine the words, you could take the piss out of the words, out of the quote, really. If you're standing still, you're going backwards. Well, if you're standing still, you're going backwards. You can't be doing both, but you know what he means. And uh, what I predicted to earn would happen, happened. You're talking about at least 15 clubs who started a long way behind Leighton or in the non-league who used to be like pre-season fixtures have now they're now above them but the, my only visit to Leighton Orient on a social basis was at the invite of a um a season a, a season ticket or a club member who comes all the way from the Isle of Wight to watch games stays in hotel himself David Byrne and he said uh he said, it'd been my honour to have you there as my guest he said I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with you and if anyone says anything he said I'll be piping up yeah. Earn came in, looked at me, saw me, went bright red, thought about saying hello, and then walked into the ballroom. Yeah, but I've got no axe to grind with him. Fucking good luck to him. He's done what he's done to the gaff, rinsed it. Good luck to him. Ah, that's fair, man. Uh, as we are wrapping up this interview, which I have absolutely enjoyed, by the way, generally laughed, and you know, I want to thank Shane for being the co-host. Um, basically, I'm going to go to you, Shane, quickly. Is there anything you'd like to ask John before we um, end this interview? You're, you're still on mute, mate, by the way. Right. I was just going to say, you were speaking earlier about kind of your, your kind of man management as a cab driver. And I can 
actually imagine you being quite calm and you know you're quite forthright. I can imagine you kind of tailoring your your approach to each customer, you know, about your job. Do you think that maybe when you were a manager for Late in Orient, and I know that we only saw snippets, do you think, do you think that you tailored that approach when you was a manager of Late in Orient? Do you think that you do you think that you were maybe a little bit too forthright, or do you think did yeah. you kind of think? Yeah. Do you, do you think that if you'd have maybe had the approach that you are as a cabbie when you was a manager, then maybe you know you could have maybe have more of a future in the game? I was saying I'm fairly tainted, just to say, yeah. but all the same, that's how it's perceived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People's perception is different from the reality. Um, you've asked some fantastic questions, both of you. And I know I've gone all around the houses, and I know I've given a long-winded answer because that's fucking that's that, that, that's what I usually yeah, do. That's what we wanted, mate. Honestly. Yeah, but I, I, yeah. listen, I, my missus says I've got, to, and even he said it, Durham, which might explain another reason why I'm not on radio. You've got to be more forthright. Uh, sorry, you've got to be more um, uh, short in your aunt. You've got to condense things more. My missus says you've got to be more frenzied. Answer the question, she says. You start going off at this tangent and that tangent, that. So I apologise for that. Right. Hey, but be silly. what you're saying is two things. It's a twofold thing, right? It's a twofold thing. There is a cutoff point with me always, right? But I've never all the way through my life, I've never had enough credit for having a longer cutoff point than anybody else, right? Mm. So picking up the thread of what you're saying, I often say if I'd have shown the same patience, right, um, as a coach and a manager that I've shown as a black cab driver, I would have been in the game for the last 25 years. But then in my defense on the flip side is, uh, what should never be underestimated is, uh, the amount of encouragement that I gave, the amount of praise that I gave. And that is overlooked by the fact that, like I said, journalism is based on sensationalism and everyone concentrated on the rants. So a little bit in my defense that, and a little bit more in my defense, um, the fantastic information and coaching sessions I put on and a little bit more in my defense. Um, the fact that I took a keen interest in every single individual. Mm -hmm. Right. So watching, uh, the keys to success on Netflix with him, Ferguson is, is, it's not news to me, you know, with regards to being a separate entity, he says, and he draws a ball and he's got like players, management staff or players, mm -hmm. manager staff in the ball. And then over there, you've got the supporters. Then over there, you've got the directors. And then over there, you've got something else. But concentrating on the supporters and the directors, he said, I always felt that we should be self-contained separate entity, which is exactly what I said at Lake Norrin 25, 26 years ago. Um, well, I got the job in um, 94, 95. So, yeah, so it's nearly 26 years ago. Um, I, I always said that. And the other thing is taking a keen interest in each individual. So none mm -hmm. of that's documented the fact that like Mark Warren, who was like a uh, mixed race kid, wanted the street, like street cred, tough guy, plenty of verbal, plenty of rabbit. He's in my office crying because um, his partner's dad wouldn't let him see his daughter and his, and his kid. Um, and I, I, I nursed him through that. And he's the one when I said, see you, you little, and you, you big, he was the big. Mm. Uh, Barry, Barry Lakin was the little C yeah. and he was the big C, right? But um, he got by on sheer pace and power, the brains of a rocking horse and the football, in, the football intelligence of a dead goldfish. Um, but, but, but people, he done, I've got no recognition for the fact that I've, I, I nursed him through that period 
with all these things going off the field. I'll get no credit for sticking to the agreement with Glenn Cockrell, who lived in Hampshire, only turning up twice a week. And one of them was to stay in a hotel overnight and have the time of his life before the game the next day. So he only, he only trained three days a week out of, out of the five. Right? Everyone normally had Wednesday off. He'd have Monday off. And he said, oh, it's all right. He said, I'll get my legs going on the bike at home. So you trust him as a good pro. He was a good lad and a good pro. And he tried to help me. And uh, I've got no credit for sticking to that agreement. Because if I wanted to be a bastard, I'd say, no, you've got to be in on Monday. Make him drive all the way out from Hampshire. You've got to be in on Tuesday. Make him drive all well, the way out from Hampshire. We did see that in the dock. Everyone's, oh, you did see that in the dock. Uh, yeah. Wednesday off with everybody else. Thursday, you drive up from Hampshire. And then Friday, you drive up from Hampshire. And then I'll let you stay in hotel. No. I say, okay, you can have Monday off. Do a little bit at home with your kids. Go out on the bike. Get your legs going again. Do a few stretches. Uh, I'll see you Tuesday. Wednesday, you'll have off. And then come and uh, come in on Thursday because we're going to run a few through a few things, and you stay in hotel Thursday night and Friday night, play the game Saturday, and go on back to Hampshire. I stuck to that agreement he had with Peter Eustace, uh, so no, nobody nobody sees that. And he, yeah. he was one of the ones, you know, he, he had no resale value. He come in on a good deal um, in the twilight of his career. Um, no one no one sees the the fact that, that I, basically Sean Brooks was homeless. Um, on, on the brink of divorce and I found him somewhere to live and gave him a contract. Uh, keen, interesting young players and their playing habits and living habits and what were they doing away from the game to make them a more well-rounded person because I said to him, why you here I expect you to work but you've got to have again, back to him, Ferguson again. Um, I, I advised him, you've got to have as many keen interests as you can outside of the game. Take up, take up, uh, you know, something constructive in the arts or something, a hobby, learn a language, learn the piano, uh, become qualified, get a qualification, do a, do a degree, do, 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 do an open university, something like that. So if it falls on deaf ears, fair enough. What mm. I was trying to do, I was trying to guide them um, through the do's and don'ts um, and help them learn from my mistakes. You know, but like Barry Lakin, when I dug him out, as you, your little C, right, you're talking about two years earlier, Arsenal were looking at him. So that's how far he fucking plummeted. You understand what I mean? So what I try yeah. to do, I try, I try to pick him back up. No one sees any of that. Mm. No one sees any. But you, I mean, you don't, you don't expect any credit for it. Uh, but at the same time, I, I expected a little bit more leniency when you look at the like the, the crimes and misdemeanors that I'm named named earlier. And there's been a lot more since those. That when my book came out in 2016, there's been a lot more since then. <laughs> mm. Do you know what I mean? So the, the list goes on and on and on. And I just sit back and smile. You know what I mean? It's like, but it's, um, it's like I was saying to my wife uh, this morning, there's a saying, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. I like that. I like that. You rob people of happiness because they're always trying to think there's something better out Yeah. Well, listen, I've, I've got, I've got I, all I wanted to do was blend in and fit in. I mm. mean, you, you, you've got fucking Muppets. They all think they look like um, Val Kilmer or fucking Elvis Presley. I mean, we all want to look like Elvis Presley. You know what I mean? But it weren't to be, so you just crack on with what you got. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but you look, you look at cunts. You just say you must have one of them dist distorted fairground mirrors in your house. You know what I mean? Where, where you, you think you look like fucking Val Kilmer, young Val Kilmer. <laughs> You've got to be a cunt giving me stick. You know what I mean? <laughs> I fucking love it. Yeah. Sad people are fucking love, sad. Uh... Listen, sometimes there's things. See, people. People say things and do things, which is what I said. Uh, comparison is, 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 you know, is the thief is the thief of joy. Mm. Uh, it, 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 people sometimes they say something 
it ain't, it ain't, sometimes it can be banter, but sometimes what you've got to learn in life or realise in life, I realised it may be too late. Um, I thought I was too intense on one thing at a time uh, where you've got to be blah, 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 all over it, you know. Um, people say things sometimes uh, just to make themselves feel better about themselves. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Definitely. Definitely, definitely. Awesome, awesome. So the last question I'm going to have is because I do listen to your podcast on a regular basis and I know that you keep up to date with the game and you talk about and you predict and also agree with you about Shaka and Harry Kane. Um, if anyone wants to know what he has said, go listen to his podcast. I will put the details in the description. But I want to ask you quickly, uh, we're about what, three games in now in the season. I just want to ask, who do you predict will win the league? And if you've got any predictions for relegation also. Yeah, no, if you want to put my arm up my back, I mean, I, I, I still think it's far too early. You, you get a, mm. uh, you get a picture in any division where whereabouts you're going to be around about October, unless yeah. someone goes on a crazy run. Um, but if you're going to twist my arm up my back, I've said uh, I've gone for them early, Man United, um, which was a couple of weeks ago, well before they got Ronaldo back, which mm. I think, I mean, that could be one or two extremes. I think it could upset the apple cart or it could be uh, just an unbelievable signing. Yeah. Uh, where, whereby, you know, like a little bit, um, it's funny, it's a pun in itself, a little bit a la Cantona, where he's coming mm. and he has a positive influence on, on everybody. He's mm. a more mature player. Uh, now I think he um, he can he, he's, he's learned to share things more rather than it all being about him like it was. He's only up to it, John. Say again. He's only up to it. He can get yeah. the man to make yeah. United take. Yeah, he's a man. He's a manager with a with, with, who makes a few coaching points, but you can see that he he delegates to the likes of Phelan and uh, Carrick. Carrick. I Does think, they think do, that he's I, good at got enough. Why wouldn't he be? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Well, asking, I'm not, I'm yeah, yeah. No, listen, there's different. Diff I think he, listen, I think he's uh, wonderfully understated. Wonderfully understated, yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I really he doesn't think, get the credit and he's a victim of perception, something that you've obviously... Yeah, another, well. another one's Nuno. I mean, I, I said my surprise packages would be uh, West Ham and Spurs. I no. thought I thought Nuno no was a good. I thought Nuno was a good shout, yeah. <laughs> even though he was fourth, fifth choice. But that's the way the game goes sometimes, well, and it can, it, it can happen by fluke. Well, Chelsea, I've got a, um, I've got to have a, a little like rethink about uh, having having uh, predicted United because um, when I was talking about it, they were actually in, in the middle of doing the deal for Lukaku. I think he'll add a, a new dimension. I mean, mm. they are like everything: physically powerful, passing movement. He'll it bring he'll yeah. bring the lot, you know. Mm. Uh, it'll add it'll add to the ingredients. So, I think it's out of uh, Chelsea sitting United. I've gone for United just because uh, I like to be different and I like to be a little bit unpredictable. And I like you know it'd be nice it's, uh, um, for Ollie. It'd be the first title in no, first. Nice to actually hear someone because he gets a lot of stick. Um, it's nice to actually hear someone not only rooting for Ollie but actually. You know, believing in him as well, I think that's you know. It's mm. You've always got to listen. You've always you've always got to read and look deeper. You've always got to yeah. like Arteta. He's giving out valid messages all over the gaff. And I, as an ex-manager, as an ex-player, as someone's been inside a football club or football environment for twenty-five years, until I uh, stopped staffing courses for the FA because I got leapfrogged for a monitor's job in nineteen ninety-seven by school teachers who'd never laced a pair of boots on, and then asked to go and do it. Uh, on top of the two-week qualification, there was another two-week qualification. So the full badge, then the conversion to the UEFA, 
having staff courses for nine years and generated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds, they wanted me to uh, stop doing the knowledge, not get any dull money, quit me three part-time jobs to go and do a two-week teaching course at Lillishaw, right, to basically regurgitate stuff that I'd already knew um, and that I'd already uh, put across in the previous nine years. Mm. going over old ground, I couldn't afford it. So I just said, you know what, what with school teachers taking the job that I should have had, fuck it, that's me done. And I walked out, I turned it in. So I may be, if I'd have worked my way up and kept my mouth shut, instead of speaking up for everybody else about the flat balls and the rip bibs and not enough cones and not enough expenses, uh, then I might have still been at the FA. But they're going like, oh, sis, can you have a word about the thing, about the expenses? Can you have a word about cutting back on this? Can you have a word about the, the equipment? Can you have a word about it? Yeah, all right, okay. I think you're right. So I spoke up about it. If I'd have kept my mouth shut, I might have been higher up at the FA. Who knows? You know what I mean? But they, mm. they wouldn't come across the original idea if it fucking headbutted them. You know what I mean? Mm. But uh, So I was always going to be uh, uh, on the periphery or, or, an out, or an outcast. You understand what I'm trying very to quick, say? Very quickly, John, just on predictions and managers and stuff. Obviously, you're an England fan. Just give me a quick overview in terms of, you know, Southgate's obviously done well on paper, but there's still doubts about whether he again, can get England to play. Do you think the fact that we can't keep the ball and we struggle to, you know, manage a game, is that down to Southgate's coaches? Is that just down to the fact we haven't got the midfielders? And do you think Southgate's the man to, to make that final step as well? Two things quickly. Right. Yeah. The question before, top three, uh, United, uh, Chelsea City not necessarily in that order bottom three uh, from the Ministry of State in the obvious Norwich um, Watford um, possibly Palace or Brighton possibly Newcastle I think it, uh, possibly Southampton so the last place will be out of it maybe them four yeah, yeah. Um, in answer to your, to your I could have been uh, very disparaging, maybe borderline disrespectful, but I caught the disease of positivity. I, I, I just went along with the uh, with a flow. I went I went with a flow of everybody else after the uh, defeat in the Euros final at Wembley. I tried to be upbeat and positive about it and look at the pluses, um, but I still think we're um, even though it was on penalties, I still think we're a long way in terms of uh, how it should be from uh, achieving, yeah. uh, achieving anything. Um, so that's not, not, I mean, he's saying last night, you know, um, Stuart Pierce is an ex-teammate and someone who got on with him uh, from Euro 96, etc. Um, he's a very likeable guy, which he is. And then you've got Adrian Durham saying he's a very likeable guy and he talks a good game and he's a good manager and he takes a keen interest in his players and he comes across as a decent football man and a decent coach. And Adrian Durham said he's like a statesman. He's like a statesman. As he raised his voice, as he said it, he's like a statesman. I don't want a statesman. I just want a winner. I don't want a fucking geezer who might run for prime minister and get a knighthood. I just want a winner. I Mate, just want someone. I just want someone who's going to be who's going to be like I said they should be proactive during a game, not reactive. Yep. Someone who's got balls oh. like Mancini had, who won it for Italy or turned the tide for Italy and got the equaliser. I want someone who's like, now nah, the penny's dropped after I've been saying it since I was 28. I'm 62 next month, like I keep saying. I said it at 28. We're not tactically adaptable enough. Uh, the, 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 the syllabus is too rigid. There's too many things like this, 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 this and this missing out of the syllabus when uh, uh, coaches get qualified. Then I said the same again 
Uh, that was in 1990. Then I said the same again when we converted to the UEFA in 1997. Right? So they're like, who the fuck is this geezer? He slid down from one of the best academies in Europe, if not the world at the time, Chelsea, under Sexton, McCready, Grady and Shalato, right down to uh, the fourth division with Leighton Orient. So he's a nobody. You understand? Well, I'm not a nobody. I've thought about the game and I know as much about the game and I can talk more in depth about the game and be more profound about the game than any fucking pundit on the telly you care to name. You understand? Now, mm. the bottom line is you're dismissed because you're not an high-profile face. You're not an high-profile name. But I've been saying all these things have been missing since I did uh, started taking my badges at 28. Then I went through all the prep courses. And then just before I was 30, I did the full badge in 1990. You understand? Then again in 1997. So I know all these ingredients that have been missing for decades. Not a few weeks, not a few months, decades. Yeah. You understand? So, you know... Uh, slowly, slowly, what he's trying to do is trying to change the culture. But it's all knitted in now. I don't know whether to leave the chapter out or include it, but it's all knitted in now, and it has been for a long, 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 long time with politics. So now you've got all the other peripheral stuff about the sign behind Paul Elliott. We guarantee by 2000 and whatever the fuck, there will be X amount of women coaches. We guarantee by 2000, whatever the fuck, there will be uh, BA, X amount of BAME coaches. Well, what if they're not good enough? Who's going to pass them? Who's going to have the final say? The person who's got the final say. I've, I've coached with staff coaches who said, oh, well, now we're passing. What arm can he do? What arm can he do? Once he's got his qualification, I'll tell you what arm he can do. He can ruin a whole fucking generation of players or wangle his way into an academy at a professional football club. And then you end up, instead of a conveyor belt, uh, you end up with a car crash. You get me? That's what damage you can do. So these are the battles that I've been fighting from behind the scenes and probably why I've got a fuck off tablet. Because we're, you know, I'm willing to be questioned. I'm willing to sort of say, no, you know, I mean, this is a better way. And I'll hold me hands. If I'm wrong, I'll hold me hands up. That's I'm gifted with that. I'm gifted with that. If I'm wrong, I'll admit it and I'll hold me hands up. Like I've done with you with the documentary. Because at the end of the day, the only one it done any damage to was me. I mean, yeah. uh, someone who decided to sign a seven-day contract and wanted to fleece the fucking club with a 30% rise and a guaranteed testimonial and the testimonial fund kick-started by the five directors for who put in two grand each, ergo 10 grand to kick-start his fund, but they couldn't afford to pay the milk bill. I said, you're in club cuckoo land. He wouldn't sign for the same money. He ends up at Wickham. I'm the one ended up out of football. <laughs> you understand? When I question people, I'm the one who ended up out of football. So, you know, it might explain why... Um, You've got to be very appropriate and very careful how you word things. Uh, whereas, I'd, really and truly, I'd rather cut to the chase. Um, and I've been on the end of enough where people are cut to the chase. Frank Clark used me as a fucking punch bag at Leighton Orient. I mean, what a Mickey Mouse fucking manager he was. And he couldn't coach either. But he ends up, he gets a nice few quid out of Forest. My missus could have got one promotion with that team. Fucking Stuart Pierce, Colin Cooper, Stan Collymore. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. The other little scallywag in midfield. And then he goes on to City and um, shows his true colours and gets a massive payoff. You know what I mean? So it takes me back to a question you asked me, right? Anyone, has anyone um, offered a hand, offered help? He contacted me a few weeks ago by email. I fell asleep on a Saturday night. So I woke up lively for match of the day. As I wake up, my missus said, you all right? I went, yeah. She said, do you want a cup of tea? I said, yeah, I want mine, babe, yeah. So uh, she says, you ain't going to believe this. I went, well, she said, I've just received an email from Frank Clark apologising for uh, the fact that he should have done, could have done, 
a lot more for me and it didn't manage my career appropriately and didn't reward my uh, match performance and loyalty appropriately. I said, well, it's too fucking late now. I needed your help 25 years ago, like the help you got when you had two successive relegations at Leighton Orient, had four years in the bottom division, then all of a sudden, Brian Clough comes right into the rescue because you played for him. You know mm. what I mean? That's, that's mm. when I needed your help. So he says, well, if you want to come up and stay with me and Pam, I said, look, we both know that ain't going to happen. I ain't fucking interested. I'm not interested. While you're here, be nice, be straight, be honest. Don't fucking be like a scumbag and then approach me 25 years later right, and tell By me, email. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have done this, I could have done this, da, da, da. You understand? Yeah. I'm not down with that. I'm not down with that. We all make mistakes. We all do things wrong. But what I'll do, I'll go around, I'll apologise within the hour or the next day at the latest. You understand? I don't want to fucking hear it by email 25 years later. This is the, this is the fucking calibre of person you're dealing with in football. Believe maybe me. Worried. Maybe he's worried. He knows you've got a new book out. That's what it is. No, the book's been out since 2016. No, you about your, your next oh, the book. second one. Oh, yeah. fuck me. Yeah, no, if I want to go to town, listen, I work, if I want to go to town in that, what all I've got to be, what I've got to be careful of is litigation. But yeah, I don't get yeah. that. How can someone say you're litigious, right, when all you're doing is stating what went on? It's your opinion, so it's fine. Well, no, yeah, yeah, it is, but it's my opinion based on what went Commonly on. These, these, these are the facts. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that, and I'll make it quite well, clear. No, because stop. I think with, with that sort of thing, as long as it's your belief, you in essence say what you want, you've got to be careful. As long as it's your opinion, if someone's wronged you and you believe that genuinely, it's very hard to prove otherwise in court, so mm. let rip. Mm. Oh, I will. Just, uh, you know. I will. I will, because it's like I said to him in the email, you know, um, they're going on about, uh, he's a good manager, Frank Wolf, who, like Brian Eastick said, you're just Clarky's fag as in the Tom Brown school days version, right? Um, I mean, how can you have a commercial manager there for 15 years and he ain't raised a fucking pot to piss him? He used to celebrate, he used to celebrate with a packet of uh, Rothmans because he got a match ball sponsor. And you've got the assistant manager, he can't even get a sponsored car. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But he used to say, oh, Clark, you're great manager, great. Well, how's that great management if you ain't even got the confidence in the players that you've signed to be able to take a bollock in? So you give me the bollock in. I've told him, what's this man of a match trophy I just won? What's this player of the month trophy I just won from a local newspaper? And you're bollocking me. Sits. I'm doing it because your shoulders are the only shoulders broad enough to take it. And they're going to think, fucking hell, if he dig sits out, and he ain't said anything to me. And I know how bad, because you know before anybody else how well or how badly you've played. You understand? So he says, like, if they're looking and they're going, well, he's bollocked him and he ain't bollocked me, where does that leave me? And I don't even have to bollock him. I said, yeah, but I ain't been fucking come here to be your punch bag, your verbal punch bag. You know what I mean? Mm. And, one uh, quick thing, John, very, 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 very fine if you've got time. Just very quick, because you're active on social media. I just wanted to ask you, in terms of players these days, apparently, you know, you hear a lot of stories about the first thing they do after the game is look at social media, for better or worse. Do you think that's just bringing just too much added pressure now and, and you know, is it worth having if you're a player, basically? You can't win. Is it worth the ag? Yeah, I, no, you can't win. You can't win. They say, um, quite rightly, that um, players are massively detached from the supporters in brackets, customers who follow the brand, yeah. according to Karen Brady, um, paraphrase, allegedly. Um, whereas before, I remember playing in Chelsea's first team at Liverpool and I came in on the tube and the kid, 
And his dad and his dad, he went, that's John Sitton, like that. And then he came, he said, do we have a photo done with my son? Can you sign the programme? I said, of course, of course I can. Um, now they come in a Bentley with uh, their own parking space and then they play the game and they go to the nightclub and they have a VIP table with 10 mates and pay two grand for a bottle of Grey Goose and a bottle of champagne with a fucking sparkler stuck in the cork. You know what I mean? Whereas we went down the pub and had a half a lager. Um, but then the upside or the plus side is they, they try and be interactive on uh, social media. And then you've got these problems, um, a deluge of, of, of problems with regards to uh, trolls and people coating them off. And so, so like I said, you can't win. You can't win. And, and I was told, see, this is the thing I had with him, uh, Bernard Goodall, Mad Frankie Fraser. He, he come in and he said, uh, I'll drive you to the training ground. So now we're going there on car burner. Da, da, da. No, he said, I want to see uh, how you warm up. I want to, hold on, you're an, you're, you're an accountant or you're a, you're a business troubleshooter. But it earns employed you to come in and see how the place runs. He said, yeah. He came to, in the dressing room before training to train in in his car, watch the warm-up, watch the session. Well, my friend Morris Evans, uh, I saw you're talking about him like he's fucking Bill Shankly. My friend Morris Evans at Reading always plays 11 v 11. I said, well, maybe that's because he can't coach and he just puts on a game. <laughs> you understand? You've got to break it down. It's about deconstructivism. You've got to break it down and build it up again, right? That fucking, you know, air miles over his head, air miles. And... um he was in the game. He was in the dressing room before the game. He was in the dressing room at half time. Then he says, I don't think you should have an inquest immediately after the game. I said, why is that? He said, well, um, it's still raw. It gives you time to calm down. It gives you time to go away and think about things. I said, I've already thought about things. I said, you've hit the nail on the head. It's still raw. So I said, so that's the best time for it to come out. Because when people, um, when their adrenaline is pumping, whether it's a player or a coach, player, manager, coach, that's when the truth comes out. And so I'm questioning this executive and he didn't like it. But I happen to think that if you're going to address the players, at the latest, it should be the next day at the warm down because that's when it's at its most raw. And when it's at its most raw is when it's more likely that the truth will come out. Well, he didn't, he didn't like it. So in the end, he was running the dressing room. You know what I mean? So that's another little insight for the late Norrin supporters. He was running the dressing room. He was, he was, he set the atmosphere. He set the tone. He undermined me and Turner. He um, questioned everything when he wasn't qualified to do so. Awesome, 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 awesome. I want to thank everyone involved in today's interview. Just thank you, Shane, for being a good co-host. Your questions were fantastic. Uh, you put me to shame. So you might have to replace me as the host. Uh, John, <laughs> as I've, as I've uh, bombarded you privately and on Twitter itself to oh, come no on. And you have, and you, yeah. as I said, like this meant a lot. And I know you're a busy man. You've got a book coming out. Uh, second one, because you're an author already. You're a family man, working man. You watch the game and you have your own podcast. I'm going to put all those details down in the description. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode thank you there's going to be more episodes of what you call it podcast coming out soon you can also catch my appearance on bbc essex radio it's on my youtube which will also be in the description below but for now everyone have a fantastic weekend and just keep your head up and bring it come dinner. on england come on england <laughs> the following podcast is brought to you by the jonas podcasting network found exclusively at wrestlingwithjonas.com